welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. Today we are speaking with the lead mechanical engineer on Mars Cube 1, Joel Steinkraus. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPEX and SpexCast at our website specs.rit.edu. Hi, Joel. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, so can you tell us what your background is and what your role is on the Mars Cube 1 mission? Sure. So on Mars Cube 1, uh, short uh, is Marco. Uh, I'm the mechanical lead, uh, but on all small spacecrafts, uh, titles, uh, titles disappear quickly and sort of the whole team ends up getting involved in everything. But uh, Specifically, I was the mechanical lead for the Marco spacecraft uh, that will be launching uh, on May 5th with the InSight spacecraft. Great. Um, so to set the scene here, what was your journey to becoming part of the Marco project? Before Marco, I had been working at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory for about two and a half years. Uh, but then once I got onto the, uh, before then, I had worked on some much larger missions, uh, doing some electronic packaging, uh, and also on a, a CubeSat radiometer called RACE. Um, that was unfortunately lost with the uh, the Orb 3 failure. Uh, but at the end of that, that's when I sort of got onto the Marco project. Uh, and at the beginning of the Marco project, we had a, a relatively short time span, about 14 months, that we were planning to design, build, test, and deliver two, two spacecrafts um, to do what had never been done before, and that was fly into interplanetary space. Um, and uh, the... the the challenge was too much to pass up, and so I uh, gladly gladly became part of the team. And uh, here we are, a, a few more than 14 months later, but uh, we have two spacecraft integrated and ready for launch in just a couple of weeks. Excellent. Uh, we'll get into the specifics about the hardware involved with Marco in a little bit. Uh, but first, can you tell us what your uh, what kind of things you get into, what your role is as lead mechanical engineer? Sure. One of the largest uh, uh, roles that I had being the mechanical lead uh, was owning the mechanical configuration. Uh, one of the awesome things that CubeSats provide to the, the space industry is their very compact size. Um, however, in the design phase of this, this is a really difficult constraint. You have uh, what amounts to a, a family-sized cereal box that you're trying to cram all of the smarts and all of the uh, the tools that you need for this Swiss Army knife of a spacecraft uh, to survive in interplanetary space. And so there's not a lot of room to spare at the end of the day. Um, also, uh, Marco had two, uh, two custom-built uh, deployable antennas. Um, we had one, which is our high-gain antenna, which allows us to achieve our 8 kilobit per second data rate uh, from a distance of Mars, and that's at X-band. We also had a deployable UHF antenna, um, I worked closely with those two engineer, uh, the two engineers who were doing the development of those uh, deployable antennas to make sure that uh, to make sure that we could actually implement them on the spacecraft, that we could meet their interface needs, and that uh, we would ultimately be able to integrate into something that met all of our requirements. And finally, I worked closely with with all of the the commercial vendors that provided unique technologies. Uh, to the Marco spacecraft to make sure that I could understand everything I could about how their subsystems worked and how they would integrate into our subsystem. 
so that they would meet all of the requirements uh, that we had at the end of the day. Ah, fantastic. Um, so first up, uh, Marco is, to my knowledge, the first interplanetary CubeSat mission. So most CubeSat missions are bound to low Earth orbit. What are some of the challenges of adapting the CubeSat architecture to deep space applications? Sure. Um, you're correct. Marco is the first interplanetary CubeSat mission. Um, and some of the challenges uh, of going to deep space uh, are actually very similar to the challenges that CubeSats that are in LEO have. Um, although some of them end up getting harder, although we have a few that actually get easier. Um, radiation, for one, uh, is quite not quite as bad in a lot of cases in deep space. And so that's actually one benefit that we have going for us. Um, and uh, as you're in deep space, you don't really have to be concerned about going into eclipse every 60 minutes like you would in LEO because there's no planet that you're going around. Um, you have a much more open uh, field of view to the, the universe around you. Um, that's where some of the simplicities uh, disappear, though. Um, where we start getting more difficult is that you're always, in, in our case, we are always moving further and further away from the sun. So every day, our power is getting less and less and less, and power is pretty hard to come by in deep space as it is. Um, also, communicating in deep space is much more difficult than in low Earth orbit. In low Earth orbit, you're close enough to Earth that uh, there are a lot of ground station and a lot of frequency opportunities um, to be able to communicate with your satellites. Uh, once you're beyond low Earth orbit, though, uh, there's really only one show in town, and that's through the Deep Space Network. Uh, and this uh, amazing tool that is the Deep Space Network has some very specific requirements um, that allow it to do some uh, wonderful things that we'll get into in a little bit. But also mean that you need a very specialized radio in order to communicate with it. And that radio, uh, called IRIS, um, was a new technology development on, uh, for Marco that had never before uh, been, been done. And so developing that specific radio that would fit into a CubeSat form factor but allow you to communicate with the DSN and it contain all of the complexities that that involved um, well, was a really... Uh, essential technology for Marco to develop. Um, additionally, um, thermal management is sort of unique in, in deep space compared to LEO, specifically for CubeSats. Uh, it sort of turns out that without any deployables, um, more traditional CubeSats in low Earth orbit are, cover the exterior of their bodies in solar cells. Um, that works out rather nicely that it keeps most of those spacecrafts somewhere between minus 30 and plus 40 C. Uh, which is a nice happy place for a lot of electronics. Um, and and so therefore, thermal management ends up being almost an afterthought on many uh, uh, traditional low Earth orbit CubeSats. Um, once you get into deep space, that paradigm sort of disappears. You need much larger solar arrays uh, in order to get enough power in order to power all of your subsystems, which means that you have um, much more heat that you can dissipate inside of you. Uh, on the other hand, you're also uh, away from the, the warm body that is Earth. So you have a very hot spot on one side that is the sun, and you have deep space everywhere else, which is very cold. So Marco has a very unique set of uh, bespoke thermal blankets uh, that keep it um, warm when it's Warm when it needs to be cold, but not too warm that we that we roast ourselves. So there was a lot of effort done in developing 
uh, Marco as a, a thermally engineered system in order to make sure that this very small box would not get too cold or too hot. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so you mentioned that Marco will be launching along with Insight, and we talked to some of those engineers on a prior episode. What does the mission profile and mission timeline look like for Marco, starting from ideally May 5th from Vandenberg? On, on May 5th, uh, the launch window for Insight to launch to Mars opens up. Marco is, uh, are currently stowed in a pair of dispensers on the rocket um, on the second stage. Um, Marco uh, ideally will launch with, when InSight launches at the opening of that launch window, as you said, on May 5th. And about an hour and a half uh, into that launch, InSight pops off the second stage of the vehicle. Uh, several minutes after that, the Marcos, one at a time, jack in the box out of their, uh, their deployment dispensers uh, that were made by Tyvek, um, and deploy a sort of in orthogonal directions away. So you have one Marco and the other Marco popping off at about 180 degrees from each other and InSight going out uh, forward. We sort of then loosely fly together uh, as a cluster um, for six months on the way to Mars as, as three separate entities. Um, and if we survive that whole six months, we'll reconverge uh, when InSight does its entry, descent, and landing. And the two Marcos will fly over uh, and get to demonstrate uh, a bent pipe relay. So in essence, as InSight is landing, it will transmit in UHF um, back to the Marco spacecraft who will receive that. Uh, and then as soon as they receive it, send it back out in X-band uh, through our high-gain antenna and transmit that data back with only... Uh, uh, a small delay and uh, the light time delay from the, the waves traveling back to Earth. So the scientists will receive that in pretty close to real time. Very interesting. So as you mentioned before, Marco is acting as a communications relay for InSight. Uh, why can't other Mars orbiters, say the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, act as a relay? Sure. Uh, actually, they will actually be acting as a relay. Um, MRO will be receiving and is the primary uh, communications relay for InSight during EDL. However, because of the geometry of where MRO is, uh, uh, and where Mars is, and where Earth is, when they receive this data, they won't immediately be able to transmit it back to Earth. Um, so while MARCO is uh, unnecessary to meet the primary mission goals of InSight, what it does do is, if successful, it'll allow us to get that information back sooner than it would otherwise be able to be retrieved. Um, in, in that sense, Marco is a demonstration of how uh, small spacecraft can work together with larger spacecraft in order to uh, provide uh, capabilities that would not necessarily be there otherwise. So obviously, monitoring EDL is the primary goal for Marco. Does the Marco satellites, do they do anything besides that during that time, either before, during the cruise to Mars, or after EDL has been completed? Uh, actually, Mars, Marco's main goal is is not even the EDL uh, relay. Marco's main goal is to demonstrate new technologies uh, on CubeSats in deep space. Uh, there are a lot of technologies that had to be developed in order to allow CubeSats to go into deep space, things that larger spacecraft have been using forever. I mentioned before that uh, the IRIS radio is a new technology that was developed and will be 
uh, allowing us to fly into deep space. Additionally, we have deployable solar panels, our, our uh, antennas uh, for our high-gain antennas, our, our medium-gain antennas, and our UHF receive antenna um, that are going to be deploying and uh, will be the first test of these in, in space. We also have a prop system, uh, which is made by VACO, and an ACS system, an attitude control system um, made by Blue Canyon Technologies, which uh, have flown before but have never been to deep space. And understanding how these systems will behave and ultimately how they'll perform um, is the primary objective of MARCO. Um, so every day we'll be getting more and more data which will allow future missions to benefit from the experiences that we've had. Uh, if we actually have six months of consecutive days of gathering all of this information, then we'll get to show off uh, how entry, descent, and landing goes uh, when InSight lands on Mars. Oh, very nice. So uh, these satellites deploy from the Centaur upper stage and they're cruising for six months. What are some of the challenges of navigating uh, such a small satellite through deep space for such a long time? So yeah, so space is a, is a difficult place. It's pretty, it's pretty hostile. Um, you have no GPS up there, so uh, Waze can't save you now. Um, you have to rely on the deep space network uh, to, in order to navigate. So initially, we have our spacecraft, um, and without any other communications relay, it, it navigates by the stars. So it has a star tracker, um, which allows it to understand where it's pointed and uh, uh, generally where it exists in the universe. Um, beyond that, the deep space network uh, and our iris radio allow us to do what's called ranging and that allows us to understand how far away marco is and get a better understanding of exactly where that spacecraft is uh, that hasn't ever been done before with a small spacecraft and so we're excited to see how that will work um, also the in deep space as i mentioned before uh, there are limited ways to communicate so um, uh, it's sort of a can you hear me now moment and and a lot of the times the answer is nope um because of uh, power constraints and because of how cubesat architectures work um we we are flying solo for most of the time and only communicating a very very small percentage of our lifetime so a lot of it marco has to understand uh how to keep itself alive and autonomously sort of behave day to day in a way that is going to allow it to be safe and and be allowed uh, and in a way that will allow it to phone home when it needs to and as i mentioned before there are all of the temperature uh, extremes that that uh, you face in deep space which are even more hostile than in, in a low earth orbit you have a very hot sun and and a very uh, a very cold deep space um, giving you uh, sunburn and frostbite all at once. Um, and then you're getting further and further away from the sun. So you're, you're slowly getting uh, less and less power. So you have to be sized in order to uh, deal with too much power early on and survive with too little late in the game. Uh, so all of these things uh, are, are challenges to keeping the CubeSats flying. Plus, uh, developing spacecraft is hard in general. There are a lot of things that uh, we try to predict will happen. And so creating a spacecraft that can anticipate and react appropriately uh, to those things that have not been foreseen is always a challenge on spacecraft. 
So as Marco is flying towards Mars and you mentioned there's not a commu continuous communication link, how does the team on the ground measure and assess the health of the satellite? Sure. So we have uh, the, the team on the ground gets data back from the spacecraft when we do communicate with it. Uh, and we transmit back data uh, not only from what's immediately happening, but stored data so that when we collect that data, we're able to see not only is, is Marco A-OK -okay now, but is, has Marco been okay? Um, has the spacecraft run into problems and how did it react? And when we get this data, we uh, are able to respond to it uh, fairly rapidly in order to make sure that any updates we can feed to, need to feed to the spacecraft, uh, we can. Uh, in addition to that, we have our whole range of, uh, of different uh, deployments and things that we um, will will do uh, not long after launch, uh, and we can then understand how the spacecraft reacts to those, and we can verify how how deployments happen and, and see how the spacecraft reacts once once all of its critical events have happened. So, uh, obviously, Marco is the first interplanetary CubeSat, but is there any prior experience or prior or existing technologies the team drew on from larger satellites that they were able to apply to the smaller form factor that Marco has? Absolutely. The, uh, the Marco team uh, has been able to draw on a lot of experiences from a lot of different areas in order to, uh, in order to bring the Marco spacecraft uh, uh, to reality. Um, our team is sort of made up of a mix of, uh, of long-term veterans in, in the space industry as well as uh, early career hires um, who are are fresh out of uh, out of universities? Um, many of them have uh, participated in CubeSats before and bring that knowledge and understanding of how CubeSats have been done uh, in academia and at other institutions. Uh, and a lot of our subject matter experts uh, have contributed and have uh, given us the benefit of all of their lessons learned. And so uh, our small core team has been able to combine. Uh, both of those worlds in order to understand uh, and merge how how the large spacecraft applies to to Marco. And so it's been a, a very fun experience um, melding all of those different worlds together into uh, into a, a unique new first uh, that is Marco in interplanetary space. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to see multidisciplinary teams come together to build something that's never been done before. Yeah, Marco uh, has Phil, an impressive array of deployables, some of which you've brought up but haven't really discussed. Um, can you go into more detail on some of the challenges from a mechanical engineering perspective on how these deployables um, were implemented on a CubeSat? Sure. Deployables uh, on any spacecraft are always a tricky thing. Um, the, they're, they're very cool. They, they do the awesome whiz-bang and make your uh, make your small little toast, uh, toaster transform into uh, something much larger. Um, it's really uh, uh, the modern-day uh, uh, demonstration of transformers. But uh, <laughs> mechanisms are also difficult because uh, things, when they're static, sort of just have to stay static. They can, they're, they're in one shape and they just stay that way always. But, but mechanisms make it so that they have to work, they have to move. Um, and so there, the difficulties that come along with that uh, for all spacecraft are 
proving that they will move and that in a whole range of environments they will move. Um, that there's not something you're doing to it that will let it move now and won't later. Um, also, mechanisms need to stay stowed until they're supposed to move, which is also a big problem. When uh, when you're a CubeSat, you're you're a, a small little box inside of another box, and you have to stay that way. If your deployables pop off too early, that's a that's a pretty big problem. Um, uh, so, showing and demonstrating and testing and proving that our deployables will stay deployed when necessary and deploy uh, when they need to uh, is a pretty big hurdle. So our high gain antenna, which uh, was the first one of our deployables, um, one of the, the most obvious ones, it's the big sail uh, looking thing on our ship. Um, it it trifolds and then folds down uh, on our top face. And so it has uh, multiple hinges and is all held down from a single point uh, uh, effectively by by a string, by a synthetic fiber cord uh, that's very strong, uh, and then we cut. So some of the technologies that uh, we developed, we drew on uh, things from CubeSat Heritage, but also an understanding of how we could hold this thing down, the, this thing being the, H, the high gain antenna, um, how we could hold it in place uh, in as few places as possible to make sure we knew that it would deploy but also to make sure that this uh, this large antenna would actually stay stowed. Um, and there were a lot of uh, environmental tests. Um, we took it to temperature. We we took it to hotter than it would ever see in space and, and colder than it would ever see in space and made it deploy. Uh, we simulated the vibration environment that we would see on launch multiple times and showed that it would stay uh, stay closed until needed it needed to deploy. Um, and did a whole range of testing to make sure that uh, the small mechanism, the, the burn wire actuator that cuts the cord and allows it to release um, would would be uh, uh, highly reliable and allow us to deploy this high gain antenna. When you're designing these systems um, and you know the hardware is coming in and you're starting to test them, what's the the balance between, design and test? Do you test as you go? Or how much time of the 14 months you had was spent, you know, simulating, running your uh, parts and mechanisms through these tests um, and verifying that they'll work? Absolutely. Uh, testing is testing is a highly essential part uh, for all spacecraft, but even, I would argue, even more so for CubeSats. Um, uh, CubeSats, or large, large programs have long life cycles and uh, um, a lot of time to assess their environments, to understand their environments, to analyze to their environments, and then to go through a set of rigorous tests in order to uh, make sure that they will survive in these environments. CubeSat, the, uh, the launch dispenser environment is much more of an unknown. Um, and uh, how these small spacecraft will respond uh, is is a, a much trickier thing. It, they are much closer to an instrument than a, a spacecraft. However, they have to do all the same things as a larger spacecraft. And so one of the things that we did on Marco was to test as early and as often as possible. Uh, so we went through fit checks um, to make sure that our, our subsystems and then our full spacecraft uh, would interface appropriately all along the way, uh, as well as doing early testing for 
for lots of different things of prototypes and then redesigning based on what we learned uh, in order to rapidly get to an end product. So getting a design close to what you think it'll be, testing it, and then being able to react to that test was an essential part uh, of getting Marco uh, from its design to its delivery. There's not a lot of margin in your mass budget for a CubeSat and definitely not enough to have duplicate systems like a larger spacecraft might. So how did you compensate for this lack of redundancy? Sure. So you're correct. There are large, large spacecraft have, have redundant systems uh, where, where there are critical, critical functions that are being performed. In a CubeSat, you uh, add redundancy where you can, but often uh, you don't have lots of redundant systems. For our burn wires, um, we actually carry redundant burn wire mechanisms for our deployables for just that reason. Uh, but it's always a packaging constraint to understand where you can place them in fitting them in. Uh, for things uh, like electronics boards, you don't have the luxury on a CubeSat of carrying multiples. And so you have to design systems that are able to protect themselves. Um, you have watchdogs in place to pr make sure that software takes over and knows how it can understand uh, uh, can detect faults that have occurred um, and react accordingly. Um, you have systems that can reset themselves if, if they run into a problem. Uh, and you design ways early to be able to know what the spacecraft is doing. Uh, and you try to find ways to leave yourself breadcrumbs as well. Uh, to understand, even if you don't have lots of information, leave ways to um, give yourself clues uh, to what's happening with the spacecraft. Awesome. Um, and speaking more on the difference from large spacecraft to small spacecraft, how do larger scale mechanisms on traditional satellites scale down? Are there particular approaches that just don't work in CubeSats? And um, similarly, are there approaches that do work on a CubeSat that you couldn't do on a larger spacecraft? As you might guess, it's, it's a mixed bag as to what, what lessons from large mechanisms translate to, to CubeSats. Uh, one of the more, more striking difficulties is that the release mechanisms that are used on large spacecraft, uh, many of those don't, don't work on small spacecraft for, for a myriad uh, of reasons, um, or for a multitude of reasons, rather. Um, pyro devices aren't, aren't really uh, acceptable as CubeSats are secondary payloads um, and having uh, explosive releases uh, is definitely not an acceptable risk for a secondary payload to add to a primary mission. Um, things, uh, other types of things that uh, uh, allow larger spacecraft to deploy um, aren't acceptable because they're just too large on small spacecraft. And so uh, many of the devices that are used are, are tiny and uh, must inherently be simple in order to work on a small spacecraft because you physically don't have the space to put together something uh, highly complicated um, uh, like you might have on larger spacecraft. Um, additionally, um, m most or rather many small spacecraft deployables are, are sprung systems. You use Stow them, you have uh, springs that are trying to push out, and then when you cut them free, they deploy up against a hard stop. This uh, isn't done all that frequently on large spacecraft, specifically because of the size of things. 
you can do this on smaller spacecraft because the inertias that you're going to have in order to stop this large this uh this deployable from uh, at the end of its motion are small enough that your systems can can actually uh safely hit that hard stop and stop whereas large uh large systems even if you have a small force that is deploying you you pick up a lot of inertia as you're deploying uh, and you get to the end of your motion and you need much more complex systems so for that uh by that token we're able to make uh more simplistic systems which are actually a benefit in small spacecraft you have systems that can behave robustly and do what they need to do uh, without having to add in lots of complex additional systems uh, in order to more specifically control your deployment uh, which is actually a large benefit um, small mechanisms um, one of the difficulties of them is uh, just the manufacturing tolerances you have to achieve for something that's that small uh, can become a, a, a large driver you have small hinges and small springs and uh, you have to uh, very intricately make sure that these things are the right sizes uh, or else you have the opportunity or the risk that those things will will bind or jam up or not deploy uh, and the most important thing for all these mechanisms is that they are reliable and so making sure you can design in that reliability um, is essential for all mechanisms but uh, very essential for, for small spacecraft. So currently the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Mars Odyssey act as communication relays for Mars surface missions. The Planetary Society pointed towards what they're calling a satellite gap on Mars. Uh, do you think that nanosatellites like MARCO could fill this role in the future where they can take data from landers and rovers on Mars and send it back to Earth? That's a very interesting concept. So it's outside my area of expertise uh, to sort of say what NASA will choose to develop in the future for its telecom relays. Um, that would be a better question for someone at headquarters. But some of the differences between CubeSats and current orbital relays, such as MRO, um, uh, there, there's quite a few. And so in, if Marco, as it stands now, would not be a great orbital asset, specifically because Marco isn't an orbiter. Uh, Marco is a flyby satellite, and um, once it passes Mars, it just keeps on going. So it is uh, effective for communications for a very specific period in time when InSight is going through entry, descent, and landing. Um, in order to go into orbit of a planet like, uh, like Mars, you would need a lot more delta V capability. So Marco carries on the order of uh, 40 meters per second of propellant that allow it, to, uh, 40 meters per second of delta V um, to allow it to, to change this, uh, its, its velocity in space. Uh, in order to do an orbital insertion, you need closer to, uh, closer to 1,000 meters per second. And uh, that's, a, that's a large step up. So um, you would need a very different propulsion system and a very different methodology for achieving uh, uh, getting into orbit. Um, also, large missions like MRO are designed specifically to last for a long time, which makes them work great as orbital relays. Uh, they're reliable, they live for a long time, and, uh, and they've been designed to do so. Um, this takes a, an increased inspection of parts, looking for flaws and defects, and testing for long periods of time. Um, that uh, those large missions have gone through that, that CubeSats have not, or specifically Marco has not. 
Um, additionally, more expensive parts selections, which guarantee that those subsystems will live for longer periods of time uh, and survive in the harsh environment would be necessary. Um, also, Marco's data rate is about 8 kilobits per second, which is just great for what it's doing for relaying um, insights, entry, descent, and landing data. However, satellites like MRO can go up to uh, close to 6 megabits per second. So it's about 750 times faster. So um, while Marco works great for relaying the entry, descent, and landing data, if you were going to be transmitting large amounts of data continuously from uh, satellites on the surface, uh, you'd have to have a much larger antenna or more powerful amplifiers, and all of these things mean larger volumes uh, for the antennas, larger solar arrays for the power, and larger amplifiers, which is more volume inside as well. So you, all of these things um, uh, would have to come together in order to make a small spacecraft uh, an effective orbital relay. Uh, CubeSats came from the academic space. Um, as a way to lower the cost of satellite missions for educational purposes. Uh, the form factor is now been adopted by NASA and also the commercial sector. Did you draw on these technologies while building Marco uh, from the commercial sector? Absolutely. The commercial sector has done uh, a lot of development of technologies specific specifically for use on uh, academic and commercial uh, CubeSats because of that uh, booming industry. Um, because of this, we took advantage of many commercial vendors uh, who provided unique technologies that we're demonstrating on Marco. Uh, specifically, we have mo many of our main subsystems that come from them. Um, we have Blue Canyon Technologies uh, in Boulder, Colorado that provided our attitude control system, um, the exact unit. We have uh, Vaco Industries in South El, Monte, uh, South El Monte, which uh, designed and built our cold gas thruster uh, and works with um, the exact unit uh, in order that the exact unit can control the thruster almost as an aftermarket extension of its, of its own um, uh, technology capabilities. So the exact unit determines what it needs to do and says, ah, I need to use a thruster right now and operates the VACO thruster as if it was part of its, uh, as if it were its left arm. Um, AstroDev in Ann Arbor, Michigan designed uh, our, our power supply and our, uh, our CDH, our com uh, computer for Marco, as it were. Um, uh, MMA Design in Boulder also, uh, sort of right next door actually to Blue Canyon, uh, designed our deployable solar arrays. Uh, and Tyvek uh, actually designed the uh, the dispenser and acted as our our, our launch integrator to uh, to interface to the uh, uh, to the rocket that we are launching on. Uh, and last but not least, obviously, United Launch Alliance um, is creating the rocket uh, not for specifically for Marco, but uh, they are our they are our ride to space. So Marco uh, uh, quite heavily relied on. Uh, different technologies uh, that were uh, developed for the commercial CubeSat and the commercial space industry uh, and have been purposed, uh, uh, modified, and and are being tested on the Marco spacecraft. Um, kind of conversely, do you see the unique technologies that your team developed for Marco being adopted by commercial CubeSats and commercial satellites in the future? So uh, launching commercial 
uh, deep space missions would involve decisions that are sort of a bit above my pay grade. Uh, but NASA uh, might have more thoughts on that if uh, there's someone there that would comment on that. Um, I can say that NASA is interested in more CubeSat missions in general. There are 13 CubeSat missions slated to fly with the SLS EM-1 spacecraft. Um, those CubeSats are all going to interplanetary space and will all be doing uh, interesting new technologies. So uh, NASA obviously is interested uh, in seeing what CubeSat, uh, what roles CubeSats can play, um, and they are launching 13 of them uh, along with that SLS first launch. And you did mention that uh, some of the components on Marco um, haven't been flown on interplanetary missions before, and that's one of the things you're looking for to test. Can you comment in more detail on what that might entail? Sure. Uh, so, so Marco is uh, is demonstrating multiple multiple technologies that uh, are useful and, and on CubeSats and small spacecraft in general. They're the miniaturizations of of what are often larger subsystems on different spacecraft. Um, the Marco Iris radio, which is being developed to communicate with the deep space network, uh, will be used on uh, many, if not all, of the EM uh, CubeSats because it is it is a uh, developed technology. And the testing on that Marco is uh, going to be doing while in launch is going to be invaluable uh, to understanding how that uh, that radio will perform in future uh, deep space missions. Um, as well, all of the technologies that our commercial vendors uh, have provided for us are undergoing, will be tested uh, when we when we fly into deep space. Um, the deployable antennas, which were developed at JPL, are going to, uh, are one option of technologies and showing how uh, deployable antennas can be, or how large format antennas can be made more compact uh, and allow for uh, communications from further and further distances um, and uh, understanding how 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 all of these subsystems work and watching how they perform day after day uh, is going to be very useful uh, to feedback into um, future missions. So you mentioned that Marco is a technology development mission and demonstration mission. What does the next or what is the next step for the Marco team? Would there be a Marco 2 or what do you think is the, the next logical path uh, for this kind of technology? Sure, so I can't comment on what, uh, or rather I'm not aware of what uh, the specific technology is going to do after that. That's, uh, that's above my pay grade, but um, Many of our, the members of Marco who were on the initial build team, like I said, everyone wears many hats on CubeSats. Um, uh, a lot of them are also um, working on uh, the ops team. They're going to be flying it. So they went from initially conceptualizing what is Marco, how will it work, to, to designing its subsystems, to going through uh, months of testing on them, uh, to finally delivering them. And now they're flying that spacecraft. So... Uh, they are truly understanding sort of the full um, the the full life cycle uh, of what a a spacecraft goes through, and so uh, they'll be they'll be working on flying Marco for the next uh, the next six months. Um, uh, much of the team is also going and working on other missions. They're taking the the lessons and the understanding of what they've learned on Marco, uh, and they're going on to work at 
other on other projects uh, um, around JPL and uh, and at NASA. There, um, the benefits of what you learn developing a CubeSat um, are able to be translated into uh, to many different projects, and so it's very useful data and very useful um, training that allows you to, or that you've gained when you worked on work when you work on one of these. Uh, and so I believe they're taking those lessons learned and feeding them forward uh, into their future projects. So you mentioned that you and the team had originally 14 months to design the mission and deliver it ready for launch. Um, when you started that process, were there any things that you expected to be especially difficult or challenging? And during that process, uh, what were some of those things that surprised you uh, that you didn't expect uh, when you first started? Yes, uh, when, we, when we originally started building Marco, we had about 14 months to do it. And um, one, of the, one of the difficult challenges is that uh, spacecraft are complex systems. And so you have a lot of different things that are all being developed in parallel in order to meet, uh, to meet a, uh, a delivery date. Um, but that being said, the the system is very compact, and so all all subsystems are sort of influenced by all the other subsystems around them. There's there's not a lot of decoupling, and so a lot of integration has to happen. And so people necessarily need to be in everyone else's business. Um, the teams had to work closely together. Uh, I I share a, de a desk with uh, the electronics engineer who designed the the. Uh, the electronic systems for Marco. And so we worked very closely together uh, throughout the Marco project to make sure that uh, what he was designing would fit inside the spacecraft and could interface to everything else and that we would be able to uh, interconnect all of these systems. That being said, lots of other systems, uh, systems change through the development. You start out with a baseline, you go and begin to work towards achieving requirements and you realize along the way that uh, certain things that you were planning to do aren't going to work out. Um, you have to be able to react to these things very rapidly and make changes and be fluid enough uh, in order to make those changes. Um, you have to be very flexible on a CubeSat in order to uh, accommodate all of the uncertainty that is going to happen in order to actually deliver on time. Many of the things that we started with looked very, very different from what we ended up with. We had a lot of systems that, uh, that went through multiple iterations and many design cycles in order to actually reach a point where they would function, they were testable, and, uh, and they, that they would reach a point that they would reliably work in our system as a whole. The, the level of integration is in a CubeSat is, uh, necessitates subsystems working together and understanding other subsystems. And so the sort of the open plan of everyone works on lots of different things and having an understanding of things uh, is important. Uh, I've said before, many Marco is made up of a lot of specialists who are also generalists, who are also systems engineers. So you have people who uh, are, are very good at what their specific job is but are also very nosy and interested in everyone else's job too. Uh, and that allows them to, to understand and make design choices, uh, even without being told to, um, that benefit the system as a whole. 
So uh, you mentioned that you guys went through several different designs that didn't work out. Uh, are there a few designs that you thought were awesome or cool or amazing, but during the process either couldn't get to work or had to be cut for those balance reasons that you'd say on a future mission love to see? Sure. I think, um, like I said, yeah, many, many designs came and went. Um, I think ones, ones that uh, stick in my mind are, are people, it, it's, it's fun to make things um, pretty whiz bang. And so uh, it's always tempting to make many, many things deployable and many, many things uh, pop out and spring, uh, spring open. Uh, it's kind of a, a fun thing to design mechanisms. Um, but limiting the number of, of things that have to move and have to work um, is always is always difficult. Striking the right balance of it opens like this, but it folds three times, but doesn't fold 12 times. Even though the 12 times looks pretty cool when you do it, uh, it's difficult to to justify the need for it. And, and every every additional mechanism, every additional hinge line uh, is another thing that needs to be tested and verified and made to work. Uh, and it's another thing that might work, that might uh, have a problem with it. So striking the balance between uh, how these designs deploy and how much, how much um, uh, animation, how much uh, uh, deployment and, and mechanization occurs um, is something that always needs to be balanced. Um, cabling inside of a spacecraft is always, uh, inside of a small sat is, is always a tricky thing. Um, traditional CubeSats uh, often have relied on uh, electronic boards that stack together, um, sort of using header pins to, to have common connections between all of them. And um, uh, for, for many reasons, that uh, is not the way many of the Marco boards go together. Um, if uh, uh, on, on some of the uh, uh, the media resources, and I'd encourage you to to take a look at them, you can find more information out uh, about Marco at go.nasa.gov/marco/launch. Um, there are there are some images that give you a, a rough view of the inside of the Marco spacecraft, and really, you you have a uh, sort of stacks of of things. You have a, a large prop system which takes up half of your internal volume. Then you really have four other little stacks of things. And interconnecting those uh, is, is sort of non-trivial. There's a lot of different signals and a lot of power that has to be routed there. And so, um, what uh, many of the options that we initially thought for how we could connect these uh, these different subsystems. Um, became became way too large and while they would be really nice for for being able to connect and disconnect all of these things easy and they work great on a benchtop setup um, they don't work in a very compact uh, CubeSat uh, volume and so uh, a lot of thought and a lot of uh, uh, design and prototyping had to go into figuring out how we would harness together all of these subsystems uh, in a way that would allow them to talk to each other and to interface, uh, but wouldn't take up too much volume. Yeah, that seems like a very uh, interesting challenge to take on. Absolutely. I, uh, the, the electronics engineer and myself uh, worked for a lot of hours uh, to get the harnessing just right, to make sure that everything could connect together, stow up, 
and we could put the lid on this box um, very uh, very differently than my suitcase, which works very well when uh, I fill it too full and then jump on top of it to make it close. Uh, CubeSats, CubeSats don't like that so much, so you have to be much more meticulous in your placement of things. Yeah, uh, circling back to something you said towards the beginning, you talked about the thermal management uh, for Marco and how having one side facing the sun and one side facing deep space gives you both extremes of deep cold and, and high temperature. And you mentioned uh, thermal blankets and other thermal protection. Um, what is the kind of process to handle those extremes? And do you have any internal mechanisms for moving that heat energy through the spacecraft? So Marco doesn't have... Uh... We, we don't have any mechanized uh, thermal solutions. Marco doesn't have any louvers or, or things of that nature uh, that would alter that. Uh, what Marco does have, though, is um, we do have uh, lots of different heaters in different places in order to uh, control different thermal zones. Um, Marco also has some subsystems isolated and on a completely different thermal zone. They're, they're made to be... Uh, poor conductors between the subsystem and the rest of the spacecraft in order to allow us to control uh, more tightly uh, that that temperature zone uh, while we can let the other rest of the spacecraft go to go to a different temperature zone. So we have thermal blankets on the outside which generally protect us from from getting too warm or too cold. Um, we have radiators on the backside which allow us to to dump heat but not too much heat because uh, Marco goes for long periods of time in, in low power modes. So we, we often uh, uh, operate in, in sort of a transient condition. We, we get very, very warm for a period of time, and then we slowly shed heat and we cool down over, uh, over hours and hours. Um, and then eventually stabilize out to a, an acceptable temperature and, until we get warm again. Um, and then we get warm and then we ride out these transients. And um, uh, the design of that is, is different than you would experience on larger spacecraft, which often uh, are sized uh, both in power and thermally to, to be able to stay pretty close to constant as much as possible. They try to have much narrower temperature bands that they go to, and they operate uh, at, at a few discrete steady states. I have a question um, going back to um, one thing we didn't talk about much yet, so far, and that's the fact that Marco is a pair of CubeSats. Um, so can you give us some background on why using two is better than just one for this mission? And um, one thing I'm really interested to know is what it was like to build two identical spacecraft. Um, and because I often think of CubeSats as being one-off experiments, um, but when you have to build it twice, did your processes change? Did your designs change? And uh, what was that like? Sure. So uh, you're absolutely correct. There are two Marco spacecraft um, that are flying together, and we only really require one spacecraft in order to do the entry, descent, and landing. So they are they are redundant systems. Um, going back to our primary objective for Marco, which is the first demonstration of, uh, of how interplanetary CubeSat technologies will perform in deep space, um, 
two, two spacecraft are better than one spacecraft. You're able to have uh, more data points in, in order to understand how things are performing. Um, you can show that, oh yeah, this, this spacecraft uh, performed this way and this one performed a little differently. You can uh, understand what, what small differences are more important and which are less important. You also get more opportunities and uh, um, more, more ability to, um, to assess all of those different uh, parameters. Um, additionally, you do get the added benefit of, of having redundancy. So um, for surviving six months, uh, in order to get to the, the entry, descent, and landing uh, bent pipe uh, data relay, um, only one spacecraft needs to survive that full six months in order to demonstrate that. Um, so one of the benefits, aside from just getting additional data from the spacecraft, is that uh, you have a greater likelihood of reaching your, your secondary objective of performing this bent pipe relay. Um, in terms of uh, your, your second part of your question, what's it like to build two spacecraft at once? Um, interesting. That's a, that's a great term for it. Uh, you, you definitely uh, have the ability to, to juggle the subsystems. Um, having the same small team, like you mentioned, CubeSats are often one-offs and are almost always much smaller teams. Having two spacecrafts that uh, have two different play schedules uh, and making them get to all of their play dates on time uh, each day um, requires a lot of coordination. Um, it, it truly is juggling to to get uh, uh, one spacecraft uh, is getting built up to go to a, a telecommunications demonstration and test, while the other one is in Thermalvac 24/7 uh, for uh, for days on end, and uh, uh, and is being um, being taken to the limits of what we think it's going to see in space. Uh, and then doing vibration testing with one while the other one's being reconfigured uh, to go to a different test. It, it's uh, a lot of coordination uh, to sh uh, get these two CubeSats um, in parallel, uh, both to the same final objective. And then you're right that at different points in time, the different CubeSats had different levels of maturity. Um, one would be almost completely built up. Um, so, uh, one of the Marco units um, was almost completely uh, done with its testing um, two years ago uh, when we were initially going to launch or uh, before we um, stood down for, for the, uh, the two-year delay between, uh, between launch opportunities. Um, the second one, um, a lot of its testing happened um, more recently within the last six months. So. Uh, the development and the lessons learned from the one CubeSat definitely advised the other. Uh, and getting the understanding that comes with uh, the development of one definitely um, uh, influences the second one. Insight was delayed in 2016 due to an issue with the Scythe instrument, um, which had nothing to do with Marco. How did that two-year span from 2016 to now 2018 uh, look for the Marco team? Did you spend it testing your systems more or revisiting designs or did Marco kind of stay in its 2016 state um, and wait until now? So much of Marco uh, uh, during, during our two year, uh, our, our two year wait, um, 
stayed in in similar in a similar state to how it was when we left it. Um, um, Marco was designed and, and funded to be developed, and uh, we we were very close to completing. Uh, however, because uh, because of the the changes and and the uh, how hardware changes over over two years, um, the hardware that wasn't uh, yet finalized was basically put into a safe state uh, and stored so that we could pick it up and make sure that it was still still functional, still working, and still in the right state when when we restarted again. And Marco then completed its development uh, and underwent all of its testing in order to show that now that uh, two years later we are we are still ready to go and uh, ready to perform our 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 full mission. Well, I think we all are looking forward to the launch of Insight and the launch of Marco coming up very very soon, or by the time this is released, having already launched. <clears throat> but it's going to be really exciting to watch both missions and hopefully get uh, close to real time telemetry due to the Marco relay system. So it's going to be really exciting to see both of these spacecraft play out. I, I agree. I'm uh, eagerly awaiting launch day. And I'd say to your uh, to your listeners, if they have any any uh, additional interest in Marco, to recommend to go to the, the go.nasa.gov forward slash Marco underscore launch webpage uh, to learn more about Marco and the upcoming launch. Uh, and for more information on Insight, to go to www.nasa.gov forward slash Insight. We've been speaking with Joel Steinkraus, uh, who's the lead mechanical engineer for Marco. Thanks a lot, Joel. Phil and TJ, it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This episode was brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, which is currently holding a crowdfunding campaign. Your donations will allow RIT Specs to continue to give students hands-on opportunities to work with remote sensing, aerospace, and astronomy. Learn more at specs.rit.edu. For more information about Marco and the InSight mission, check out the companion blog post for this episode and other articles about space news, science, and technology at blog.specscast.com. This episode was part two of our Mars May series. Last week, we spoke with JPL Instrument Systems Engineer Troy Hudson about his work on HP Cubed, a self-hammering nail that will dig five meters below the Martian surface. Stay tuned for a discussion with an engineer who literally talks to rovers coming up later this month. You can download these episodes and more by subscribing to SpecsCast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to tell us what you think. Leave a review on iTunes or reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. See you next time.